Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. Where warfare and the state's role in military affairs transformed between 1500 and 1800, In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black, author of A Short History of War, explores and debunks some generalisations about war in early modern Europe. Professor Jeremy Black, the uh, period of warfare, particularly in Europe, that we are going to discuss in this podcast, uh, starts with the the period of uh, armoured breastplates and swords, and goes through to to the muskets and cannonball, with, with a large period of overlap between the two. And there there are three, or I would say there there are three big differences in this period from medieval warfare. Uh, The first is this increasing use of sea power. Uh, The second is uh, the way in which fortifications first withstand and then succumb to uh, technology. And then the third is the state monopolization of warfare. Um, and, and there are others as well, but, but let's, uh, let, let's just start with, with those. Um, uh, that's, uh, one, one of the things that's distinct from the medieval period is that, um, that the state really has monopolised the means of making war. Uh, royal armies, state armies are not dependent on subcontracting to regional uh, potentates for, for the most part. Um, how has the nationalisation of warfare in, in this way, how, how did it come about? OK, I'm going to irritate you enormously, Graham, but I'm going to tell you, um, I mean, you might well find some people who would say that, but I'm afraid to say that kind of big bang towards a different form of warfare is one I've spent the best part of three decades. I've done other things as well, trying to show that it's at best deeply flawed and at worst fundamentally wrong. Right. So, um, you know, I don't want to just tell people to look at my books, which in this case would be War in European History, uh, to look at. But I want to say that um, the argument against the notion of a of a transformed, modernised form of warfare in this period, as it can be seen in a number of scholars' works, it's not just me. I would say a very good person's works to look at would be David Parrott, uh, who's written very cogently on the uh, French army in that period. I would also say that although it had traction in its day, the notion of a so-called military revolution in um, European history is now uh, deeply problematic, which is polite academic code, as you know, for uh, various other phrases that one could use. Um, so, no, I don't agree with you at all. Um, and I would say that, I mean, if you're thinking of the raising of forces, um, uh, to a considerable extent, as Parrot and others have shown for France or has been shown for 
the German lands with the Thirty Years' War, it was necessary to turn to contractors. I mean, uh, Redlich did a major work on the German military contractor quite a while ago. I think it's 1964 it comes out. So, no, I'm afraid I don't agree. <laughs> and actually, I think that the what is interesting, now, to me, as a scholar, what is interesting is not so much um, the, you know, interpretations change and all the rest of it. What I find interesting is why particular interpretations arise at a particular moment, specific moment. And even more interesting, why do they go on being pumped out when there has been a considerable amount of specific empirical, methodological, conceptual work to argue that they are deeply flawed? And I've puzzled about that. And I think it's because of the nature of military history, partly, and of the place of military history, which is a separate subject. As far as the nature of military history, I think that a lot of the people who do it focus primarily on the tactical level. Um, and on particular campaigns, and aren't necessarily interested in big picture theory. In fact, often the very psychological type means they're not. Um, Secondly, I think that a lot of the people that work on uh, military history uh, subliminally are uh, people who are interested in stuff, uh, the material culture of war, guns, um and their equivalent which are and therefore they're in, they're inclined to see those as the key factors and if you're interested in other subjects um the relationship between war and the state or uh the infrastructure of war you tend to be less active uh in you know there are fewer of you i mean Um, And the next point, I think, is that a lot of general historians aren't interested in war. Maybe they're disinclined about it. So what they find convenient is some catch-all idea that seems to explain it. And then once they've committed themselves to it, it gets on being reprised. And lastly, there is the, and I've written about this, there's a piece I wrote last year on it, on the website of the uh, Society for Italian Military History, but it's in English. Um, the uh, There's this fascination with the notion of revolution. So, you know, uh, I mean, and I think partly that comes from Hegelian ideas, partly it comes from the fact that many people are on the left, uh, partly it comes from a, a desperation of many people to argue for the significance of what they're want of what they're working on, no, not least its causative significance for other factors. So obviously, if you're going to argue that there's an industrial revolution, agricultural revolution, technological revolution, sexual revolution, and all the rest of it, war mustn't miss out. And once people have committed themselves to the notion of a military revolution, then it has to be of consequence, um, and they are then committed. Now, as you may or may not know, there's people who've got many other things to do in their life than read my books. Um, For years, I've argued that that in many senses, modernity comes in in the 19th century. I argued that 
first and most forcefully in the conclusion of my Europe in the 18th century, but I went on to argue it in my book on Europe 1550 to 1800 and a number of other books. So I've argued very much from that, and I would see the so-called early modern period as rather a continuation of what we would call the medieval age. So I'm afraid trying to be not too difficult, I don't agree. No, that's good. Uh, it would be a, a tiresome podcast if we uh, if we all uh, agreed with each other. So th- th- there's no uh, military revolution. Uh, at best, there's a military evolution, but uh, to a large extent, there's a military continuation. Uh, and yet, um, by the 18th century, to give the, the British as an example, which may or may not be, be typical in Europe, the 18th century... It is the it is the state which is raising regiments, albeit with local dignitaries uh, front and centre of the process. In the seventeenth century, during the Civil War, there are still great landowners raising regiments to either the cause of Parliament or the King, and, and before that, you you have um, a more feudal situation. So, I mean, between the the fifteenth and the eighteenth century, the, there is a change in the relationship. Uh, in in Britain, particularly between the the, the state and uh, the means of of raising. Let me just say several things here on this. First of all, just to be a a nuisance, uh, actually, at the time of the Jacobite rising in 1745-46, they went back to the idea of aristocrats raising regiments. But we'll leave that to one side. And, um, uh, you know, civil war does tend to bring that out. uh, uh, Let's just take another thing which might interest you. You're a conservative, all right? Now, what you're offering is the standard paradigm of the left, that progress equals state control. And, you know, you may well be a secret left winger. I, You know, it's interesting that it comes out in this form. But what is exciting is that there are scholars, of which I am one, and as I said, you can look at my, Europe, you know, history of Europe at war, sorry, Europe in war, or you can look at my new book on new history of logistics, and I am not the only one who have argued that what you might call in the modern terms a private-public partnership is considerably more effective than state control. And indeed, I've already referred to David Parrott. That, in a sense, is the subtext of Parrott's book. He's arguing that the attempt under state, of state control under Richelieu and Mazarin, an attempt made necessary because they were totally unpopular with most of the aristocracy, went badly wrong, that the armies couldn't feed themselves, they couldn't raise the money, and that this changed and you went to a system in which actually you had much more of a public-private partnership, which is what how I've always seen the Ancien Regime. So I wouldn't agree with you. I would say, and if you wanted to take the specific case of Britain, I would say you're closest with the Navy rather than the Army. But even in the Navy, I'm not sure I would call always the way in which the contractors operated, or for that matter, um, the nature of those very different issue, the use of the press gang um, as a, uh, as necessarily the most efficient modern of systems. But there we go. When you run the country, we can have press ganging to fill uh, vacancies in the police or whatever. 
It's an exciting uh, electoral slogan. Let's see how it runs. Uh, it, it, how uniform is this process of, of what you call a public-private partnership um, across Europe? Uh, let, let us hone in on a period, um, the, the early 18th century, the period of, of uh, the Spanish War of the Succession, for example. Well, I would say it was. I mean, obviously, you know, there are different interpretations of um, ancien regime monarchy, but I would say that um, the need to elicit the cooperation of the social elite and of intermediate institutions such as town councils was one which meant in in real terms, you had to have such cooperation. You can always think of government as one in which you do a top-down approach. In other words, it's as if I press a button here, I'm the French Minister of the Marine, and something happens at the main naval best base at Brest. The reality is it was extraordinarily difficult to get instructions implemented if people didn't want to carry them out. Um, and also, these governments are operating in terms of what we might call an information void. These are, on the whole, pre-census ages. They're ages with highly unpredictable um, revenue streams where you don't really know who owns what. You know, you've not got a, you've only got a partially monetarized society. Um, so what I would do is emphasize the weakness of government, which then makes it much more interesting as to how you get government to work. And the general way you get government to work is to bribe people. You bribe them with honours, you bribe them with tax exemptions, you bribe them with uh, specific patronage, um, and you have, as a result of that, a kind of um, there's a very good book by the American scholar Brendan Meehan Waters on the Russian service elite of 1730. You get you go up in the service elite if you do, you know, if you fulfill uh, roles, but looked at differently, you have to be pushed up in the service elite because you're the only people who are in a position to do this. You know, it's a, it's a two-way process, or as you may know, people endlessly wrote about Louis XIV's Antendon. Um, uh, but there's good work, William Bicon. This is long established. This isn't new. William Bicon, Languedoc, for example, which has shown that Antendon only were effective if they actually gave people the instructions they wanted to follow. If they didn't want to follow these instructions, there was very little the Crown could do unless you were dealing with a group that was marginalised within society. It was entirely possible to brutalise the Huguenots because by the 1680s they are marginal within French society. Much harder to do that to the aristocracy unless you have, as you're to get by 1792, a totally revolutionary situation. And does the process in which armies are raised um, differ? I'm thinking particularly in terms of the way in which between the 17th and um, 18th centuries, uh, you pay in conditions, uh, press ganging, conscription, uh, actual genuine um, free will volunteering. Um, what, what, what shifts uh, are, are detectable um, over these two centuries? 
Well, um, I think uh, the I think you would say that. Well, what I've argued is as follows: that the cohesion of relations between governments and elites break down as a result of the Reformation. This, co which helps to um, create instability in country after country, your native Scotland, um, France, Poland, Hungary, the German lands, etc., that this process of reconciliation, re-knitting, um, as it were, is what we really should call the Ancien Regime, and that what that does from the late 17th century is make it possible to raise larger armies and to sustain them than it had been possible to do 100 years earlier. And that was despite the fact that you're in stage B, so-called, of the early modern European economy, in which there is um, population stagnation um, due to the ice age, due to epidemic disease, due to a number of factors, um, which means that you've act this is actually putting more pressure, raising large numbers is putting more pressure. Now, let us be clear um, I was, as you know, very equivocal when we were discussing the size of armies during the Hundred Years' War. There is, as you may know, a lot of debate over the size of armies, even of Louis XIV's France, and estimates range widely among the scholars who've written on it, John Lynn, uh, David Parrott, uh, you know, people have debated and, you know, using a lot of sophisticated work. So, I, you know, I'm not going to rush in. What I am going to, and, and again, there are a whole host of factors for this, just as um, why this is the case. Um, and even Louis, I mean, I'm so excited in my book, Beyond the Military Revolution, Louis XIV commenting on how muster rolls were padded. You know, in other words, you say you've got more troops than there are there in order to get more money. Um, but what I think is the case, nevertheless, is that the armies of Austria, uh, of Prussia, of France, of Russia, by 1690, are a quite considerable burden on the available manpower of those societies. But that is possible because the aristocracies of those societies are aligned with the crown. So it's not really causing a social problem. Um, I think most people would argue or would accept that the conventional argument that Louis XIV had 400,000 men in his, in his army is not correct. Um, but even if you're talking about over a quarter of a million, that's still a lot of people. In a population pre-census age, depends when you're talking about in Louis XIV's reign, because he's king from 1643 to 1715, but between 20 and 23 million. So you're talking about a number of troops well above, a sort of a, a ratio well above that of the present numbers. Right, right. And, and what, what are the, the terms of service? Would a, um, a soldier expect to just fight for a campaigning season and then... Uh, be effectively sent home again until there's another campaigning season, or 
what 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 you know, what what were the expectations once you'd taken the the king's shilling or or livre or, or whatever currency you're paid in? Well, there's a difference between voluntary service for pay, in which it's whatever is the terms and conditions that you're working to, and compulsory service. If and you know there is no set situation, and it depends what kind of army you're in. So, for example, if you're looking at Louis XIV's France, the militia would not ordinarily be sent abroad. That would not be understood as part of their military service. But obviously, regular regiments completely different. Um, what you generally had in most states for both armies and navies is the raising of fresh forces at wartime and their demobilization at the end of war. So you're talking about a precarious career structure. But equally, if you're in an, in an elite regiment, you're likely to be kept on in peacetime. But if you're in a new raised regiment, you're likely to only fight for the duration of that war. Right, right. So duration of the war, um, that, that's necessarily or potentially different to duration of a campaign. Oh, very different. Um, very different. So, so, I mean, you, you'll, you'll be lucky if, if you're only hired to fight for a, for a summer season, as it were. Well, I mean, why would you want to fight for a summer, one summer season anyway? I mean, the... Um, um, the time, if you're looking at it in simple economic terms, the time when you're of most use completely for both military and non-military processes is the summer. It's the summer when you're more likely to be able to do harvest work or to be campaigning. Um, obviously, you know, again, if you look at my book, Beyond the Military Revolution, differences in those societies where there are, say, two rice harvests a year and all the rest of it. So we're talking essentially about the European paradigm here, which is not a paradigm for non-Europe. OK, so let's just stay that, say that. But look, they're not asking you, would you like to serve for a campaign? If, you've, <laughs> if you're in the army, you're staying there for the war. Do you want Graham to be shot for desertion? <laughs> it might be better than some of the things. <laughs> how, how, how would my pay compare to being a, a, a farm labourer? Um, it would be, hmm, that's in the good one. I mean, for both forms of work, which is what they were, a lot of the payment was in kind. So in other words, um, kind would be, um, and again, we're talking about average here, you would be given food. You would be given something to drink. That would be pay in kind. In the case of the army, you would also have your equipment provided to you. Um, as far as if what you mean is spending money, which is what you appear to mean, uh, there wasn't much spending money in either. Right, right. Well, uh, let's let's turn to uh, to the navy, um, and I think here is. We're never going to, to talk about military revolutions with you ever again. But, but here is an area where there seems to me to be a, a, an obvious difference between the medieval world um, and, and the 18th century world, which is the development of, of ship technology and, and the development of broadside firing. Um, for, for the uninitiated, could, could you just explain how that was a development from how um, cannons fixed on, on ships um, uh, 
performed before. Yes, I mean, there's a whole host. I mean, if you want to use technology, it's not, as you know, I'm a bit cherry of technological uh, determinism. A whole host of things are, are involved, including the extent to which you can have recoil with fire to the side without it destabilizing the ship, the extent to which you can open gun ports without and then have them seal without water coming in. There's a whole host of factors that enable you to have broadside fire, okay? And obviously, that depends upon the kind of ship you're doing. We're talking here about non-galleys, because obviously in galleys, the side, the side uh, is taken up by the rowers. So if we're talking about sailing ships, You've got the opportunities there. And also another factor that's worth making, um, it's the development of relatively cheap or better metallurgical processes, which enable you to have um, large numbers of guns. So all of that is pertinent. And as you correctly say, the total firepower of shipping increases. Now, there is no fixed size of ship, but if we're just looking at the Brits, um, standard British shipping by, let's say, 1770s, there's a lot of 74 gunners. So if you have, let us say, eight ships of the line at 74 guns, one at 84 guns as the flagship, and maybe three frigates at 50 guns each or 44 guns each, well, you can do your sums. That's an enormous number of artillery, far greater than an army, quote, would have. And by an army, I mean an individual strike force, not the whole army. Um, so there's that. Uh, there is also, and importantly, the development of more effective or at least predictable signalling systems. That's that, you know, so signaling language, that's important. And you get um, the development of better, more sophisticated bases, which can sustain naval operations and effectively store the given parts. So places like uh, Brest and Toulon for France, um, uh, Portsmouth and Plymouth for uh, for Britain, Karlskrona for Sweden, St. Petersburg, uh, Karana and Farul for, for Spain, and so on. And what that does is, without a doubt, change the situation. And if you go back to one of my early books, uh, a, a Military Revolution Question Mark, you will see that I suggested in that book, I was I made it clear I was unhappy with the terms of military revolution, but I suggested in it that if you wanted to talk about an early modern military revolution, you should look at the period after 1660 and not the Michael Roberts period of 15, 1560 to 1660, which essentially was then the centre of Geoffrey Parker's book. And I argued tried to demonstrate that they were wrong, uh, both by talking about the pre-1660, but also discussing the post-1660. And I discussed for the post-1660 um, the development of uh, the French, Austrian and Russian armies. I discussed in terms of uh, land weaponry, the use of bayonets instead of pikes, and therefore the increase in infantry firepower. And I particularly discussed um, the greater 
um, strength and sophistication of naval forces. So, you know, I don't want to be difficult. I am wary about the term a military revolution, but I would say that if one exists for the early modern period, I'd date it to after 1660. And I would agree with you entirely that naval conflicts was important. And, you know, I would argue that things like the three Anglo-Dutch wars are very significant in this context. Um, and also the development of the British Navy, um, which um, uh, uh, by um, the end of the 1690s is the largest navy in the world and is showing increasing effectiveness as a strategic tool as well. Mm. And, and that strategic effectiveness of the Royal Navy is um, it's a matter because it's best financed or it's um, uh, uh, technologically one step ahead of the, the Dutch, the French, the, the Spanish? It's not really technology, no. It's not technology. Essentially, the warships are very similar. And in fact, in the 1750s and 60s, to, to, to a degree, the British borrow French techniques of ship construction. Um, no, um, I mean, the major technological difference, if anything, was for the uh, by the early 18th century is British fire discipline is greater. So the British are able to have a higher rate of fire, which, interestingly enough, they also do in their infantry. Um, but there isn't really much to choose between the major warships of the European powers. It's not as if you were contrasting them with, say, a Chinese warship of that period. Um, but um, I think the extent to which the Navy is pretty central to British public culture is important. The discrediting of the army, partly to do with the Cromwellian experiment, partly to do with James II. Um, so the army has a much more precarious public funding. I think that's important. The extent to which Britain as an economy is very heavily reliant on overseas trade. Its capital is in London, the major port, very different if you're looking at Spain, for example, or France. And um, with that comes a fiscal polit and political and political cultural con commitment to naval power that I think is very consequential. Um, and I would put the emphasis there. Then there are more specific things that need to protect Britain from the possibility of invasion, you know, to do with the Jacobites or foreign support to the Jacobites adds a particular strategic requirement as well. So I think all of those factors are germane. In France, it's very interesting. At the beginning of the 1690s, France had the largest navy in the world. Um, they're badly battered at the Battle of Barfleur La Hogue by an Anglo-Dutch fleet in 1692. And the French, there's a very good book on this by Geoffrey Simcox on the crisis of French sea power. The French essentially in the mid-1690s choose, under the pressure of fighting a major war, to put their focus on their army rather than on rebuilding it, the navy and make, sustaining it as the world's leading navy. So the notion that you have to choose between strategic commitments in which it's not clear that there is a right answer, whatever that means, is not something that's unique to this period. Oh, sorry, to our period, to our day. You could also be seen there. So partly 
There was, if you wish to think in these terms, a naval race, to use a later term, and partly this naval race is won by Britain, which then, having got the largest navy, has to decide what to do with it. Uh, I mean, there are many good reasons for why Britain would have a, a large navy, not least the most obvious one that Britain is an island. But um, is the, particularly in the light of the, the Glorious Revolution, is the uh, British fear of a standing army, is that one of the, the motors, maybe even just a psychological level, one of the motors for why um, defence spending is therefore put into a large navy instead of a large army? Yes, although I think it's fair to say it's worth pointing out that Charles II, and indeed James Duke of York, Lord High Admiral, had in fact been interested in the Navy, as had Charles I with ship money. So I don't think, uh, I mean, I think that, you know, it's a complicated one. And going back to your island thing, if you're looking at the 16th century, probably the most impressive ships in the world are being produced by the Koreans, who aren't an island. And obviously, as you know, in the early 15th century, the largest navy in the world, most people would agree, would be the Chinese. Um, So I don't think you... And of course, um, from, uh, I mean, you know, from 1943 onwards, the largest navy in the world is the Americans. America isn't an island, and Britain is overcome, overtaken by the Soviet Union eventually. I think one's got to be careful there. What I think you're right in drawing attention to is the cooperation that develops between the idea of parliamentary monarchy and naval power. And British commentators look back at examples of successful republics. Now, Britain, of course, wasn't a republic, but examples of successful republics, and they endlessly cite Athens, Venice, and the Dutch Republic, and argue that Britain is in that tradition as a naval power. That, and Andrew Lambert, the historian Andrew Lambert, has written about this, that there is, as it were, an encoding of naval power in a certain set of political values. And the British read themselves not as a republic, but as a limited monarchy in that context. Now, obviously, you know, there was a certain amount of selectivity there. Imperial Rome had, you know, fairly, um, you know, was, <laughs> had an imperial, had a navy. I mean, you know, there were autocratic uh, governments in the early, in, you know, the early modern period that had navies. Um, the Ottoman Empire had a very significant navy in the 16th century. Okay, it's beaten at Lepanto in 1571, but the principal people that uh, that built that defeated are Philip II of Spain, who's not generally seen as a sort of you know bleeding heart Hampstead liberal. So you've got to be caught, you know 1720 version thereof. So you've got to be careful at how you take this interpretation. Um. And it's one that I think is worthy of debate and discussion rather than simply assertion. But, you know, and I've discussed this in, I've done, I think, three books on naval power. I've discussed it in each of those. It's something that clearly there is an element there. There is an element to which landed elites who have no real interest in trade tends to be disinclined to put money behind naval forces and are often socially conservative. So if you're thinking of 
uh, imperial Germany. It tends to be industrial elites and trade elites and you know places like Hamburg that are very interested in the navy, you know, building up the navy. Whereas you know your average Junker in um, in uh, Prussia is not. So there's that element, and there's good good couple of good essays by the American political scientist Edward Rose, Rhodes R H O D E S arguing that a key element in the American development of naval power in the late 19th century is economic interests around steel industry, around places like Philadelphia. We're not talking about know-nothings from the, you know, from rural America there. So I think, yes, there is that element, and it is important, but I think one mustn't underplay the role of choice in particular circumstances. In the case of Britain, there's no doubt at all that G1 and G2, George I and George II, and those ministers who were close to them, let's say John Lord Carteret for George the second, James Viscount Stanhope for George the first, were more inclined to be, as it were, pro-army. Whereas uh, the opposition was Blue Water Navy, classic Tory position. What's more interesting are those people who were Whigs, who nevertheless thought that you shouldn't push the army too much and that you were better off thinking in naval terms. Well, let's return really to to the land and um, the nature of sieges. A lot of medieval warfare was siege warfare and laying siege is still a very important part in the early modern period of warfare. I mean, famously, obviously, the the, the, um, siege of Vienna. Uh, But by the 18th century, we're moving away from sieges to castles and sieges to cities towards sieges to fortifications. Uh, what was behind Louis XIV's uh, channeling of funds in, into building uh, forts, particularly most famously by, by his great fort uh, constructor, Vauban? Um, what, was that a, a sensible deployment of resources or one that was always ultimately going to be overcome? Well, that's a fascinating question. I mean, the major reason was the vulnerability of France to attack on its northeast frontier. This had been demonstrated in 1636 when Spanish forces had reached Corby, um, uh, demonstrated earlier in the uh, 1590s when Spanish forces had reached both Rouen and Paris. Um, So there was a sense of vulnerability, and most of the fortresses were concentrated on the northeastern and eastern frontier, though there were other positions that were fortified. Um, Good question, is it worth it? Well, of course, (laughs) it's great counterfactual. We don't know what would have happened had they not been there. I mean, certainly fortifications delayed... Um, uh, Western attack. Sorry, gosh, let's get that right again. I mean, I'm tired. What fortifications delayed non non French forces? So, um, it, Lille is a classic example, heavily fortified. It did fall to the British in 1708, but that took them a lot of time and many casualties. So, you could say that thwarted uh, what might have been a broader. Um, brought a success. Um, and, you know, Lille didn't fall in 1744 to the British or in 1792 to the Austrians. So, you know, some of these fortresses, I mean, I've been to Lille 
couple of times. I mean, it's still an impressive place. I mean, it fell in 1940 to the Germans, but it's worth bearing in mind that that, you know, capturing it helped to protect Dunkirk, helped to, and, and both the British and the French forces in Dunkirk. Um, it was a formidable defence position. Um, obviously, these things cost a lot of money. Uh, most of the money, I think it's fair to say, though, was spent within France. So it's another form of recycling, you know, recycling state finances. Um, so, no, I would say it was important. The interesting thing about Verbin was that he was not just a fortification engineer on the defensive. He was also jolly impressive as a master of siege craft. And it's not all armies that are equally proficient in the fortification of defence and the fortification of uh, of, 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 attack, of attack, um, particularly noted in his defences uh, fortifications for the use of the bastion for enfilading uh, fire, so that there were no dead grounds that your opponent um, protected from fire that your opponent could use in order to uh, uh, having advanced uh, having advanced there in order to um, attack your particular position. Um, and Vauban's reputation led to his works being reprinted through the 18th century. Well, uh, European warfare is, uh, or warfare by European armies, is not just taking place in Europe, but also in European colonies, in, in North America, and also in India. Um, with strategy and tactics different in North America and India than, than, than in, in Europe? Yes. I mean, that's, again, interesting. I mean, I would devise a typology there, and I say I would argue that the typology depends on this. In part, in both, uh, both of those, you're talking about European powers fighting other European powers. So when the uh, British attacked Pondicherry in India or the British attacked Louisbourg in, uh, in uh, Cape Breton Island, uh, in Canada, they are in effect using standard European warfare techniques against European opponents. That's not the same, though, when they're fighting against native forces. And there's a big difference because, partly a demographic one, there are far more, far more, far more manpower available in India. There is a developed military labour market which there's a very good book by a Dutch scholar writing in English, and the, as a result of which the British and the French are able to field armies which are hybrid armies. Now, there are hybrid forces in North America, for example, the French native force that destroys Braddock's advance on Fort Duquesne in uh, 1755, but the scale of the native contribution is much less, and therefore proportionately the need is much greater to rely on Western troops. Right, I see. Well, we're going to, uh, to leave it there before we get into the age of French Revolution and uh, Napoleon. But um, for Talking us through from the um, late 16th, 17th and 18th century warfare, uh, primarily in Europe, Professor Jeremy Black, author of A Short History of War, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. 
If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.